Well, good morning. You'll notice that I have on a Christmas tie. Gotten lots of compliments on it already, so let me just explain. Uh, a few years ago, somebody gave me a Christmas tie, I wore it, and someone said, oh, wow, he likes Christmas ties, so more people gave me Christmas ties. <laughs> then people started to complain that I wasn't wearing their Christmas tie. Some people complained they didn't like the Christmas tie I was wearing. One person took the tie, the Christmas tie off that they were wearing and gave it to me and then regularly tells me I don't wear their Christmas tie enough. So uh, I have so many Christmas ties that I cannot possibly wear them. We have eight services a weekend. I could rotate ties and not wear them all. So if you give me a Christmas tie, I am re-gifting it. I will not even unwrap any box that looks like it possibly is a tie. And I realize that this just is going to encourage some of you to give me a Christmas tie. Fine, that's fine. You are giving it to someone else because, as I said, I'm not even going to open it. Um, But anyway, Merry Christmas and um, good to have you here. Welcome to those joining us uh, upstairs at the 01 at Crossroads in Highland Park. So in 1983, uh, the same year that Alan Bloom published his book, The Closing of the American Mind, A professor out of the University of Virginia, Edie Hirsch, published a book called Cultural Literacy that also made a bit of a splash and continues to make a bit of a splash. The premise that that Hirsch has is that there needs to be a shared understanding of uh, a shared common knowledge of life and history and other things because we make allusions to things in our language. And, and when we don't share a common understanding of life, a lot of people don't pick up on the allusions. And so communication breaks down and things begin to crumble. Now, if you remember the book, it's likely because it depressed you. And you were depressed either because you heard statistics that said, you know... Uh, of high school seniors cannot name the country immediately to our north, right? And you think, oh, no, 89% of high school seniors can't can't name Canada. You know, I'm depressed. Or you heard only 89% of third graders can name the prime minister of Malaysia. And you think, I don't know the prime minister of Malaysia, Oh my goodness, 89% of third graders know the Prime Minister of Malaysia. I'm depressed. Either way, it it was a depressing book to read. It gets reissued almost every year with new things that everybody ought to know in order to function in America. So Hirsch's idea is that there needs to be this common basis of knowledge. And I I think it's a sound point. And I'll just note, I am now in my third I guess I technically I'm in my fourth decade. I've had three decades of vocational ministry. And they have been marked by ongoing decline in what I can assume people know. So back up to the mid-1980s, I'm a college pastor. I would train college students in how to study the Bible and send them out to start small groups in dorms and fraternities and other things. And after a little while, I thought, you know, I'm a little nervous about this. I need to have a little bit more control. I'm starting to get feedback of some of the things that these studies are doing. So, you know what? Uh, I need you to tell me what your studies are going to be on, what books you're going to be studying. 
And that goes on for a couple years. And then we say, you know what? I'm going to tell you what books you're going to be studying. And that goes on for a couple years. And then it's like, okay, we're going to call all the small group leaders together. We had 80 or 90 of them. We're going to call every small group leader together every week. And we're going to walk through the passage that you're going to study. And then the next year, it's we're going to actually do the work for you, and then we're just going to present it, and we're going to give you questions. And then I remember the last year, it's like, we're going to give you questions, and we're going to give you the answers to the questions. And, and I remember talking to a publisher of a major Christian book house. He goes, oh, yes. He says, we are dumbing everything down and idiot-proofing all Bible study material that we hand out because we can just assume less and less. And as I've shared in the past— uh, I could not get away with preaching some of the sermons preached 300 years ago in this country to the uneducated farmers of the 18th century because they knew the Bible so much better than the average American today that the pastors were making all these allusions to things and not referencing them and explaining them. So we have seen this ongoing decay. And this, this causes all kinds of challenges. For instance, I'm pretty convinced that although we've done Lessons and Carols for 37 years, and many people absolutely love it, that um, most people don't get it. Because you've got to understand the story to pick up on all the little subtle nuances that are going on throughout the Lessons and Carols, because it's, it's telling the story. And we've tried in various ways to try and dumb it down and explain it and use pictures and do other things to try and help people understand it. But I'm pretty convinced that most people don't understand it. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of people don't own, not only don't really understand it, they don't even understand that they don't understand it, right? It's just like, oh, there was a point there. I just thought it was nice lessons and songs. I, I, missed, the, I missed the flow. So uh, this series, uh, and he shall be called, is based on the premise that, that one of the ways we can help unpack the story and weave things together is by looking at some of the names and titles of Jesus and, and showing a little bit more of the backdrop and the context for them. So um, I, I started and said, look, there's, uh, there's, there's really common baseline names for Jesus, names and titles. Jesus is a name. Christ, that's a title, means Messiah. Son of God, Savior, right? Most people know those. And then there's some that are a little bit less common, but people get it. Uh, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, the Logos, the uh, Alpha and Omega. And then there's all, some that are much more obscure, sort of a third level. Um, the second born, second, uh, excuse me, first born of the dead, uh, the second Adam, the seed of woman. There's a whole bunch of other titles and allusions and references to Christ that, that maybe are less common. And so we're looking at some of these. In the first week, I looked at the term Emmanuel, which means God with us, and we were in Philippians chapter 2, and I said, uh, look, the, the whole point is that Jesus existed initially as God, and then he added humanity to deity. While remaining fully God, he became fully man. He's the God-man, and that's the incarnation. And, and sort of unpacked that. And then last week was John 6, looking at Jesus as the life, as the bread of life, and the aspects of Jesus being life. So today I want to look at a couple uh, of the more obscure references to Jesus. And my hope is, uh, again, that, that 
you will gain a sense of wonder that pulls you deeper into the story. So, for quite some time, I have asked, suggested, that you give 20 minutes every day to devotional practices. 10 plus 10. 10 minutes of reading the Bible, 10 minutes of prayer. And I've said, you got to do this every day. Don't be legalistic about it. Shoot for seven days a week. Celebrate five, right? 10 plus 10. And this is a concession. I mean, I would like more time, but it's just sort of a concession. I know that most of you aren't doing that. And so I'm like, yeah, look. And it's also done with the recognition that 10 minutes of Bible reading and 10 minutes of prayer will likely change things for you and pull you deeper in. I had a situation a while back where um, some parents, and they were in their 60s, came up to me and they said, our son has quit his corporate job and is moving to Africa to run a hospital in this dangerous zone. I go, wow. They said, he says that he's doing it because he started reading the Bible for 10 minutes a day and it's changed his life. I go, oh. He says you told him to do it. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, this is a good thing, right? We're excited about what he's doing. And it reminded me, uh, Will Williman, who's subsequently retired, but Williman used, Dr. Williman used to be the dean of the chapel at Duke uh, University. So big Gothic chapel they've got there on campus, and he would preach, and mostly it was it was students and faculty and some uh, townspeople, but it was mostly a very academic community. And, uh, and uh, Willeman was saying that one Sunday after church, as he was standing at the back, this student came up to him and he said, I decided today that I'm dropping out of law school and I'm going to go work with the poor. And he said, oh, wow, you decided that today? He goes, yes, during your sermon." He said, during my sermon, you decided you were going to drop out of law school and you were going to go work with the poor. He goes, yep. He goes, I'm going to go call my daddy right now and I'm going to tell him. He says, oh, and, and, and how do you expect daddy is going to respond to this news? He goes, oh, he's going to be furious. Willowman said, says, I said to him, I said, could you do me a favor? When you're talking to your daddy, could you leave me out of this story completely? So... Look, I, I feel the same way. I, I've got no ability to change anything, uh, starting with myself. We, we depend upon God and the Holy Spirit, but, but to the extent that we get into the Word of God, it changes us and it can pull us along. And so I am hoping that there will be uh, connections and a sense of, of greater desire and, and wonder that leads to, that, that leads to worship, because that's what worship should be. It should, we're not supposed to manufacture worship. We're supposed to just look at God and be drawn deeper into an understanding of who God is, and that leads to worship, and that leads to transformation. And we desperately need to do this because as the outside world gets stronger, right, the, our inside world has to become stronger. Right? In order to have an inside world that's changing and shaping the, the outside, we've got to have We've got to have a stronger inside world. We've got to be more proactive. We've got to cultivate a deeper walk with Christ. So part of my hope for this is that there's, as, as some things come together, there's greater sense of wonder that leads forward. And I also am hoping that, that as some of these names and titles get unpacked, that there's a greater confidence in 
the book. Uh, because the, that's one of the reasons that I believe the book is true. It's, it's not one of the primary reasons that I believe it's true. And by the way, during the Explore God series, we'll, we'll look at one, one of the big questions, right? That is, can I trust this book? We base a lot on this book. Can I trust it? Is it trustworthy? How do I know? And so we're going to look at that. And uh, there's, you know, historical arguments and bibliographic arguments and other things that, that make this a unique book and very trustworthy. But one of the things that I find encouraging is the more I dig, the more I read, the more I study, the more I realize how layered and how intricately woven together everything is. And behind every, you know, what you get the answer to the question, and behind every question, it's like, oh my goodness, that ties back to here, and it ties back to here, and it ties in with this. And it's like, oh, I, this all holds together in ways that it seems impossible that anybody could orchestrate. I mean, the Bible, this is a book that was written over 1,600 years by, by 30 different, 40 different authors in three different continents and in three different languages, and it goes after the biggest topics out there. And, and it holds together with, a, with an internal and an external consistency that is remarkable. And so uh, I'm hoping that, that some of that will, will happen. So today I want to look at three titles of God of Jesus that are that are part of the Christmas story, but you've got to read the book more than once to figure that out. The first one is uh, Seed of Woman, which is found in Genesis 3. So Genesis 1 and 2, everything's good. God creates the world. It's all good. Everything's, everything's great. Genesis 3 is where death, destruction, evil, chaos uh, all come crashing down. So it's the fall of humanity. And, and in the midst of this, of this story, the, the context that we get here, we're, we're told that, that a curse is given be, because of sin and because of, because of the rebellion. And a curse is given. And it's all very bad and hard to read. But there is, in the context of the curse... Genesis 3.15, there is, there is a promise that is made. And the, the curse is going against evil, going against the serpent. And, and God says, there will be enmity between your seed and the seed of woman. And you will crush his heel, but he will crush your head. And so seed of woman, so the NIV translates this, the woman's offspring. Uh, the seed of woman is a little bit closer to the Hebrew. The, the Hebrew term would be translated something like spermatos, which uh, starts to suggest that it's a particularly odd turn of a phrase here. So I'm not going to do a biology lecture, but women don't have sperm. Women have eggs. Men have sperm. The sperm of woman is a weird statement. So there's not enough there to figure out what that means. But as you keep reading through, you get to Isaiah chapter 7. And there, uh, Isaiah, a prophet for God, says, 
to the people who are particularly discouraged and despairing because they're waiting for the, 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 they're waiting for the one that is going to defeat evil. They're waiting for the one that's going to lead them forward. They're, they've been waiting since, they've been waiting since Genesis 3, and it doesn't seem to be happening. And so they're trying to figure this out, and they're discouraged. And, and God says, I will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. So if you're thinking, reading, studying, you might go, a virgin will conceive. Okay, that doesn't happen. Huh, I wonder if this is tied back to this Genesis 3 statement. But there's still probably not enough the first time through or the second time through for you to make the connection. Then you get to Luke chapter 2. And in Luke chapter 2, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, Behold, highly favored one, you have found favor with God, and you are going to conceive and give birth to a son, and he's going to be the Savior of the world. And, And she says, she asks, How will this be? For I am a virgin. And the angel says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will you will conceive. And now you go, okay, I get that this Luke ties back to Isaiah, ties back to, to Genesis 3, 15. The whole idea of the, of the seed of woman is a virgin conception. Now, uh, let me just note that, that uh, not everybody thinks highly of the claim of a virgin Conception, virgin birth. We call it a virgin birth, but it's technically what the claim is: is a virgin conception. And uh, and so there's a lot of you know, come on, Mike, wink, wink. We know how where babies come from. I mean, this is let's be adults. Uh, this is the 21st century, and uh, this is this this is not the way it happened. As a matter of fact, there are some that will say if you look. <laughs> If you look at the Hebrew in, in Isaiah 7, this claim, behold, a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, the promise given through the prophet Isaiah. The word that's used there, Alma, is a word that, that should be translated uh, young woman. Not a virgin, but young woman. Okay, so mm, possibly uh, the word Alma in Hebrew can be translated, can mean young woman. It can mean that in English as well. To, to call you, when you when you talk of someone being a virgin, you could you could be making a reference to them being a young woman. But it's odd. It's not the way the word virgin is used, and it's not the way the word alma is used in the Hebrew. And I'll just point out that uh, all kinds of things begin to break down. For starters, we have uh, the, the prophet Isaiah making this. Uh, prophecy that is good news to the people. Uh, Here's how you will know. You've been waiting for the promised one. You've been waiting for the Messiah. Here's how you'll know when the Messiah comes. A young woman will conceive and give birth. Okay, well, that doesn't actually narrow it down. That seems to be happening all the time. Additionally, if you've been reading the story, you realize there's all these other sort of foreshadowings of a special, spectacular birth. God tends to do this. We've got Abraham and Sarah being well past childbearing age when God intervenes and Isaac is born. We've got Elizabeth and Zechariah being well past childbearing years uh, when, when 
she conceives and gives birth to John the Baptist. And then furthermore, the, 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 the reason for the claim of a virgin birth has nothing to do with the suggestion that some people think it has to do with is that, that sex is somehow a little bit scandalous or a little bit uh, unseemly. And, and so God is a little embarrassed by the whole idea. And so religious people are going to claim, well, you know, Mary was a virgin when Christ was conceived. So I, I know when I, when I hear people who make that kind of an argument, what I know is that they haven't actually read the Bible. Because there's a lot of sex in the Bible. God is not embarrassed by it. He claims to be the author of it. He, he does put restrictions on it, but he puts restrictions on it because he says, in essence, look, I've made this so, potentially so overwhelming that, that you will be misled. You, this needs to happen in a safe context. This is going to create life. This needs to happen in a context where you've made a commitment to that. One man, one woman, together for the rest of their life. You're, you're not just physically naked, you, you, are, you are emotionally exposed. And so this needs, to be, this needs to be safeguarded. It's a good gift, but it can get you in trouble. And then God will use marital intimacy to, to talk about spiritual truths and suggest that, that it is a bit of a metaphor for the kind of, of deep connection that will happen between Christ and his bride, the church. And there's books devoted to this, like the Song of Solomon, that are celebrations of, of, of marital intimacy. And then there's suggestions that, 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 that spiritual idolatry is the equivalent of spiritual adultery. And so the, the whole book of Hosea is about Hosea being told to go marry a prostitute because that's going to be a, a model of a case study of what Israel's infidelity to God looks like. There's so much there that... It, people that are saying, well, the reason for this claim of a virgin birth is because yeah, Christians are a little embarrassed by sex. No. And additionally, it misses the big point. The whole point for a virgin conception is to bypass the pollution of sin that is introduced at the time of the curse. And so there has to be someone from coming from outside the system not compromised by sin, to be able to be a savior and to rescue us. And so, and so that's the reason that we talk about a virgin conception. And remember, Christ's life doesn't begin at conception. The claim is forever God at, crea- at, at the incarnation while remaining God, he becomes man. And he enters a virgin's womb through a completely different process of anyone else. So, seed of woman, Isaiah 7, Luke 2, all of this stuff ties together. In a different context, here's a different title of Jesus that pulls together all kinds of other things uh, that ultimately relate to the Christmas story. It's the word logos. This is found in John 1. The word logos is the Greek word for word. So we read in John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. Apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So 
Each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell the story of Christ's life. They tell it from four different angles. Matthew's Gospel, written for the Jews, opens somewhat infamously with the genealogy. Boring. Like, oh my goodness. You expect me to read this book? And we're starting with a whole page of begats. Like, like this is a really slow start. Okay, it's a slow start for people that are Gentiles. It's a particularly fast start. It's a shocking claim for a first century Jew because they're seeing that the claim is that everything is being tied back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that this is a claim through the lineage of David. Oh my goodness, they're pulling all these pieces together. Doesn't work for us. Perhaps a little bit closer to John's gospel. John is writing to Greek philosophers. The philosophers at the time that John is writing have been going, uh, the Greeks have been thinking about thinking for 3,000 years. And the, the problem is it's a failed project at this point. So what the philosophers are trying to figure out is what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of man? What have I been designed for? So... Uh, their, their belief is that there is this, this other world and this other world has all the archetypes in it and we've got a sort of a, a physical second class existence down here with imperfect representations of the things that are perfect up in, in heaven. Uh, they don't call it heaven, but whatever. And, and you try to figure out something's purpose by looking at its design. And so quite simply, the purpose of a bowl is to hold liquid. And the purpose of a space heater is to heat up a room, right? You can look at something and go, this is a space heater. The purpose of, a, of an iPhone is to help communicate. Uh, the purpose of an iPhone is not to be a hammer, right? You've got to figure out what, what, you're, what something is for in order to use it effectively. Well, the big question that remains unanswered at the time of John writing his gospel is, what is the purpose of humanity, what is my purpose? What is, what is the meaning? What am I supposed to do? What does the good life look like? How am I supposed to fulfill my destiny? And the Greeks can't agree. They can't get to an answer. And they're, they've been thinking about it for 3,000 years. And long before this, many had given up. So the Stoics said, you know what? We can't figure it out. The, the, what we're going to do is we're just going to tough it out. Whatever happens, stiff upper lip, just accept life, whatever comes your way. The Epicureans say, you know what, we can't figure it out. We're headed towards hedonism. Just do whatever you want to do. Whatever, whatever causes pleasure, go after that. And then that doesn't work for them. But everybody's, everybody's sort of frustrated. And, and the thing is, the word that they use for all of this, figuring out your purpose, figuring out your meaning, figuring out the organizing idea, is logos. And so here comes John, and he says, in the beginning was the Logos. The big organizing idea, the, the missing piece, in the beginning was the Logos. And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And so the, it's not just an idea. I mean, this is, it's not just an idea that we've been looking for. It's a person that we've been waiting for. And he is God. And our purpose comes in a relationship with him. Third, somewhat obscure, perhaps not appreciated term today. 
And there's many, by the way. Second Adam, we don't think a whole lot about that. I'll just note, Adam is one of the more commonly uh, understood names from the Bible. Jesus, Moses, Abraham, Adam. Interestingly, Adam doesn't get mentioned after the first couple chapters of Genesis. So all the references in the Old Testament to God, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They skip Adam. And you don't get anything with Adam until you get to Paul. And, and then Paul is saying that Jesus is the second Adam. And so he goes all the way back. He bypasses the Jewish part of the story, and he says he's not just the Savior of the Jews. He's the Savior of everybody. He is the representative of everybody, just as Adam was. Or uh, an, another term that we get that, that people don't often uh, appreciate is temple. <laughs> So you got, you got all this stuff developing around the, the tabernacle when it's, when, it's, uh, when it's being moved throughout the desert. The temple after it gets built by, uh, by Solomon. The temple was the place where God and man could meet. The temple was the place where we could go and have our sins forgiven. And, uh, and at the time of Christ, Herod the Great is rebuilding the second temple. So the first temple that was built by Solomon is destroyed at the time of the exile. Then when they come back from the exile 70 years later, they build a second temple. And you got to keep the temple going, but, but Solomon basically takes this small little temple, and he's got, at the time of Christ, he's, he's had 10,000 people working on it for 40 years. It's massive. And, and, this is the context. We, we see references to the fact that Jesus is the temple in Hebrews 9. But John 2 is where it really comes to light, where, where uh, the, the Pharisees, the, the leaders are questioning Jesus, and he says, look, destroy this temple. He's standing at the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. Okay, they think he's talking about the temple. That Herod has been, had 10,000 people working on for 40 years. It's still not done. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. No! He's saying, I'm the place where God and man intersect. I'm the new temple. I'm the place you come for forgiveness of sins. Right? So there's, there's all kinds of these things that just tie every piece together. The one I want to leave you with is the idea that Jesus is the good shepherd. So there's uh, a lot of pastoral themes in uh, in, in the Bible. Uh, I'm going to read Jesus making uh, a particular claim out of John 10, verse, beginning with verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. So, there's a lot of sheep, shepherd, pastoral themes in the Bible. I mean, John identifies Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that sort of ties Jesus back to being the Paschal Lamb, which is the lamb that was sacrificed before the Passover when the Jews are leaving Egypt at the end of slavery and they got to paint the blood over the doorpost, 
right? That is just clearly just always a placeholder for Jesus and the, the shed blood of Jesus. And then the angel of death will pass over, pass over that house if it's got blood because it'll know that an innocent third party died so the guilty people can go free. And that starts the whole sacrificial system. So, so we've got all of that. And Jesus at, at the Last Supper will stand there and will we'll sort of make the claim, change the Passover meal into Holy Communion by making the claim that he is the Passover lamb. This bread is my body, which is given for you. This blood is the, is the cup of my blood, which is shed for you. So he's, he's identifying as the lamb. Lots of these themes. The reason there are these themes is because that's the world in which they lived. They were shepherds for the most part. Not for the most part, but they weren't farmers. And so everybody, if you're in Israel, you see shepherds everywhere. It's, it's, it's a very, it's a bad job. You don't want the job. It tends to go to the, the lowest part of society. But you're always seeing shepherds out there. I, I suspect that if Christ were to show up today in Chicago, the metaphors would be financial. Uh, if he was in, in Silicon Valley showing up, the metaphors would all be somehow high-tech related. And, you know, Jesus is going to clean your hard drive or whatever it would be. It was, you know, it's all in the context of, of, of the world in which you live. So this claim to be a shepherd is, is powerful. So the first part of Bible study. Not the ultimate goal of Bible study, but the first goal of Bible study is to understand what the original writer intended the original reader to understand. So you've got to put this in context. So what would they have understood when they're talking about this at that time? So you study the word, you study the history, you put it in the context of the story. What do the people know? How would they hear this? So people back then understood that sheep were... Pretty slow, pretty dumb. Sorry, you played the game. If you were an animal, what kind of an animal would you be? You know, and people go, oh, I'd be an eagle, or I'd be a, you know, it's always something high on the food chain. I'd be, you know, a cougar, I'd be this. Oh, something cool, muscular. No, God weighs in, you're a sheep. So, uh, not very bright, no defenses, right? The, and, and completely dependent upon the shepherd. That's the whole point. Good shepherd, good life. Psalm 23, the good shepherd leads me besides quiet waters, right? There's, there's grass for me to eat. It's a peaceful time. Good shepherd, good life. Bad shepherd, bad life. Because shepherds are dependent entirely upon the master. Now, sheep, as a rule, if you watch them, I've done that some they're always, they always seem to be trying to get away. They always, wanna, they always want their freedom. Like us. I want to be free. I want to be free to be who I am. Okay. You don't call a free sheep free. You call it lost. You call it dead. And what we get here is Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd and I will lay down my life. For my sheep. I know them. And I will lay down my life for my sheep. What we need most of all, men and women, is not freedom. We need to be unconditionally loved. (laughs) And that is what we get in this idea of a good shepherd. So I'll say it again. Hirsch started, I started by saying, Hirsch said, there's got to be a, a pool of common knowledge to understand 
What's going on in all the illusions? We've lost a whole lot of that. And so Christmas is, for many people, Christmas is like coming in and watching the last 10 minutes of a movie, right? Okay, maybe there's some cool special effects. Maybe there's some nice scenes. But (laughs) you don't understand what's happening. And when you understand all that's happening, that's when you can sit in awe and go, oh my goodness, look at all that's going on. So there's much to be learned about a wonderful God who was promised back in Genesis 3, who is, who is conceived uh, by, by the Holy Spirit, who is, who is the Savior of the world, the promised one, who is the Logos, the one that organizes everything, the one that gives meaning who is the good shepherd who lays down his life for you. Merry Christmas. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, your word, which gives us this unfolding story, helps us see your plan and how you have woven this all together over over the generations and the, the centuries. Thank you for the great news of uh, a good shepherd. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the good shepherd. We confess that we often are seeking our freedom, not understanding that it leads us to be lost or dead. Uh, Help us to understand what a good shepherd you are. Help this story unfold and cause greater wonder and lead to greater worship and a 2019 in which we grow closer to you and understand more of who you are. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.